Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. You are listening to Tennis Channel Live, the podcast on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We've got the game, the names, and the insight you need to stay covered on all the courts. And welcome to the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels, and as always, thanks for joining us. It was another week away from the courts, but plenty of great discussion on Tennis Channel Live this week, with Roland Garros being the topic at hand. The last five years at the French Open produced some of the most scintillating, heart-stopping action that saw legends extend their brilliance and new stars in the game of tennis being born. And you can't talk about Roland Garros without mentioning the name Rafa Nadal. Rafa won the last three clay court Grand Slams, bringing his total to an absurd number of 12. Andy Roddick joined Jim Currier and Steve Weissman to try to put the Spaniards' dominance into its proper perspective and discuss how Americans can improve on the red surface. 12 titles at one major. How has he been able to dominate on such a, a, a difficult service to play on? It, it's just it's just physical domination in, in its purest form. Um, mix that with his tennis IQ doesn't get get talked about enough because we kind of get overwhelmed by by his physical prowess. But um, kind of the general leftiness and being just this powerful lefty that can get his pattern really anytime he wants to get it. Uh, Add to that three out of five sets. So you can take shots and you can take chances. And two out of three sets is a little bit more of a roll of dice. When you know you have to execute to perfection uh, and make a, a decisions outside of your comfort zone for the better part of what would be four, four and a half hours, he makes you make a decision. You either stay in longer rallies, hit the shots you're comfortable with, or you play super aggressive when the ball's above your shoulders, kind of tailing away from you, neither of which is a good decision to be had. So you know, he, he just plays physically against you, mentally against you, emotionally against you. He steals your soul. And uh, that's how you win 12 French Open titles. Yeah. And the surface doesn't hurt him uh, as well. Back in the day when the game was slower, clay was the easiest surface to play defense on. But in the game speed now, it's actually the hardest other than maybe grass. But think about when you're Nadal playing on grass, his forehand doesn't get the same benefit of bouncing up. But when you're playing them on a hard court, you get out of position because he hits the ball so wide in the court with a heavy topspin. You can at least grab your feet after you hit your shot, get back to center a little bit quicker. On clay, you're desperately sliding, and you've got the ball up high, too. It's a deadly combination. And then he obviously has the firepower on both wings, the forehand and backhand wing. There's nowhere to hide against Nadal. He beats you with the spin and the weight of shot on the forehand. And he'll flatten out that backhand and thump it down the line or cross court if you give him a chance to. Um, so he doesn't even need the serve, really. He can just get the point started in general, and then he's in dominant fashion. And, um, and he just has more time to operate as well. It's been, uh, been pretty good for him, I'd say. Yeah, and, and another thing I noticed when I would play him versus Novak or Roger, I felt way more comfortable uh, on my first serve points going against Rafa because he doesn't maybe return that as well. You give him some more time on clay where he can back up, he becomes a great first serve returner. His second serve return is always great because he can give himself space and take a big cut. 
But uh, when you can't get those cheap points off for serve like you can on maybe some other services and some quicker services against Rafa, it makes it just such a long and painful day, or maybe a short, painful day. I remember in maybe it was 05, 06, it's probably 06 when he had won his second uh, Roland Garros title. And my, my trainer, Doug Spreen, was like, I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen someone so dominant on, uh, on one service before. He goes, I think this guy's going to win eight Roland Garros titles. And I said, Doug, let's not be victims of the moment. There's a big difference between two and eight. And it turns out I was right. Rafa didn't win eight Roland Garros titles. Andy, you think about Americans in Roland Garros and what they have done uh, over the last, what, 65 years. You got four, four titles. And Michael Chang won it. Jim won it twice. And then Andre Agassi won it. Uh, what, what's been the issue for Americans in Paris? Well, I, I, I just think it, it, it goes to one services that, that you know and grew up on. I know Jim spent a lot of time uh, on the clay. And he's, uh, you know, he's the only guy who actually won it twice. Um, you know, for me, it was different because even the there, there's clay courts and then there's specific to uh, Roland Garros. You know, I always describe the clay. And when you get to Rome, which I actually played OK at and some other places where I had won titles on clay, you'd get to Roland Garros and the clay, the consistency was more like a baking powder as opposed to like uh, the other clay feels like salt. So for me, I wasn't a great mover on clay, but that was uh, kind of amplified by the court surface. I always felt like I would serve split step, and then I would kind of struggle to find my footing a little bit. And if you're not a natural uh, mover on clay in the first place, then there's kind of an, another expected level to kind of conquer. Uh, it, it really exposed uh, movement, and I think that's been the case with a lot of American players uh, throughout the years. Uh, our, uh, our present company uh, excluded Mr. Courier. Next up on the TC Live podcast, we hear from the youngest men's Grand Slam winner in tennis history. In 1989, 17-year-old American Michael Chang went on an improbable run at Roland Garros going through Wendell and Edberg to win his lone major title. 17 years old, just a shade over that. Chang was part of a new wave of American tennis players that included Jim Courier, who he caught up with on this week's TC Live to discuss that thrilling French Open run and how his transition to coaching Kaney Shikori has gone. Here he is now, Michael Chang. So happy to welcome Michael Chang here to Tennis Channel Live. Uh, it's only been about a month since I saw you, Michael. A lot has changed since then. <laughs> How have you been handling all the uh, uncertain times right now? I mean, uh, we're pretty much doing what everyone else is doing. Um, the only thing that's really different is that the, uh, the kids are obviously doing their school online, um, which is uh, some degree almost even harder because we've got three little ones. Um, but, uh, you know, we're staying at home doing, uh, uh, you know, not going out anywhere, trying to get a little bit of uh, tennis in, trying to get outside a little bit where we can um, amidst the uh, the rain that we're having here in SoCal. But, um, you know, other than that, just, uh, you know, pretty much staying put. As are many right now, and, and that's what we got. We have to do. When we think back, Michael, 31 years ago, uh, last year they had the ceremony for the 30-year anniversary of your title there at Roland Garros. Is there one moment that stands out most to you during that run? Wow. I mean, I feel like so many things happened during those two weeks um, in 89. You know, obviously I had the, the unbelievable matches um, with uh, with Lendl and Ed Berg. Um, and then obviously, you know, the situation in Tiananmen uh, happened the, um, you know, the, the middle Sunday of, uh, of the tournament, which um, you know, obviously the we we're watching uh, the events unfold, um, you know, in the week before and, um, you know, all of, all of the, the time in which it happened. My match with Lendl actually happened the, 
the day after the crackdown. So there was a lot of emotion, um, certainly on the court, but there was a lot of emotion off the court uh, as well. And, um, you know, I've often said that, um, you know, I think there's a reason for me being being Chinese, um, you know, descent. And, uh, you know, I've always felt that, uh, you know, God wanted me to win that tournament for to put a smile upon Chinese people's faces during a time when there wasn't a whole lot to smile about. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was a lot of very, very difficult in, uh, in a lot of different ways, um, but certainly a, uh, you know, very much a fairy tale uh, tournament. Michael, it had been a long time since an American male had made a, a deep run uh, there. Mac made the finals, but a uh, long time since we'd won one. Do you remember your mindset coming into that tournament? Do you remember where you were in headspace? Did you, was, were you expecting, if I made the quarterfinals, that's a good tournament? Do you remember your expectation level? Well, you know, sometimes, Jimbo, when you're, when you're young, sometimes you're a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit uh, maybe too confident sometimes. Um, you know, I know Jose would, uh, you know, obviously was, was training, um, was training really, really hard with Jose. Actually, I trained with Pete Sampras, um, for both 88 and, and the 89 French, uh, ironically I ended up playing them in, in 89, uh, which was a little bit tough. Um, they ended up putting us out on, uh, on center court, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, for me, um, I remember actually asking Jose, I said, you know, we've been working really, really hard. Um, you know, how, how, how well do you think I can do? And he says, well, you know, I think it'd be, if you can make the second week, um, you know, I think that would be a, a, you know, a great tournament for you. And in my mind, I was kind of thinking, you know, you're kind of, when you're young, you kind of don't take all these things into consideration and you're kind of, and I was kind of like second week, I said, you don't think we have a chance to win? <laughs> he was just, and he was kind of like looking at me and I'm sure he, he was thinking, who's this little, you know, cocky you know, <laughs> little kid. Um, and I would say, you know, I mean, I obviously didn't expect to win the French Open that year. I don't think anyone expected me to uh, to do as well as I did. Um, but, uh, you know, just things just came together in just so many unbelievable circumstances, um, you know, cramping against um, Lendl in the round of 16, um, you know, saving like 11 break points in the fourth set against uh, Edberg in the finals, um, cramping profusely after my match with Chesnikov. I mean, there's so many things that just you know, shouldn't have happened where, where I was able to get through those matches. Um, and it was just, uh, it was just an incredible couple of weeks there. Yeah. You broke down the door for our generation and uh, showed us what was possible. And, and you've been now working with Kena Shikori now for quite some time, trying to help him break down the door, uh, and have a Japanese male when a, when a major, can you give us an update on K and, and what's going on with him during this time? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I mean, a couple of things, obviously, you know, uh, you know, Kay's been dealing with, uh, you know, his elbow issue. Um, he hasn't played a tournament since the U.S. Open last year. Uh, he had surgery at the end of, uh, of the year last year. And, um, you know, he's back in Bradenton now starting to hit some some uh, some tennis balls, which is great uh, out there working hard with Max. And, um, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, with everything that's going on with the coronavirus, obviously, it's a very uh, sad time for um, for people around the world. But, you know, in regards to Kay's tennis, um, you know, the timing actually is 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 good for him because, um, you know, I think especially this year being in uh, being an Olympic year, all of a sudden now the Olympics are postponed to, to next year. Um, you know, Kay now has sufficient time to kind of really get ready for for the tournaments when when they do start back up. Um, he's not really rushed to uh, to get back and and um, you know kind of you know all of a sudden be thrusted into to playing all these uh, all these tournaments at such a high level. So he has time now to uh, to really get healthy, get 100% healthy, 
um, get his game back into gear. And, um, you know, Kay's been down this path before, um, you know, just as recently as a couple of years ago and got back to number four in the world. So, uh, you know, we're hoping that uh, he can do the same. And, um, you know, he certainly has the game to do it. Um, and uh, he should be, you know, obviously very fresh, uh, you know, coming back out when the tour start kicks back up again. Uh, we certainly hope so. I mean, we were talking about the Olympics and potentially teaming up with Naomi Osaka. Now that's pushed to 2021. Uh, yeah. When you were on tour, Michael, I mean, it was you, it was Jim, of course, Andre, Pete. I mean, the era, golden era of American men's tennis. Uh, we have Andy Roddick on the show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. You also cross paths with Andy on tour. Take a listen to what he had to say about that. Hey, I'm Andy Roddick, and uh, I'm going to do memory lane. I walked down memory lane for uh, for each of the slams. Uh, we're going to start with uh, we're going to start with Roland Garros. I did have my first ever kind of uh, I guess mini breakout moment at a slam where I played a, a, a match that kind of garnered a lot of attention. It was in 2001, um, second round against uh, one of my uh, one of my heroes growing up, Michael Chang. Uh, I cramped. It was the first time I'd played a, a full five-set match. Um, was struggling down the end. Somehow toughed it out. But one of the cool moments um, was we shook hands, and uh, Michael said, "Hey, listen, I cramp. I've done this before. Here's what you need to do." And kind of went point by point as to uh, how I could best recover. It was a, is a real lesson learned on how to be diligent and how to kind of prepare yourself going into the match. A coach, even when you were a player, Michael. Uh, what's your reaction to hearing that? Well, I figured, you know, at that point, I, I was out of the tournament. Uh, he's an American. Um, obviously, all, all Americans want other Americans to do well. So, you know, um, you know, I wanted him to uh, to continue to to do well the rest of the tournament. And uh, obviously, I'd been down that path before and, and cramping in, in certain situations. And I know it's really, really tough, especially at the French. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, trying to help him in, in that way, it was kind of strange, though, because when we got into the locker room, he actually jumped on the uh, on the bike for about uh, for about 10, 10, 15 minutes. And and in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, hmm, I was like, if I'm cramping, I would not be jumping on a bike right now. But, you know, but obviously it worked for him and um, and he's able to uh, to do, you know, pretty well after that. And uh yeah, I mean, it was an incredible match, and I remember being in that match and thinking to myself, gosh, I have never been in a match where I've seen serves kick that high. Um, you know, I, I, and all the guys that I've played, it was just ridiculous how, how high and how deep his serve was kicking. Um, and I remember that very, very distinctly. And obviously, Andy, you know, went on to, to, uh, to have a phenomenal career and, um, and become number one in the world. So, Michael, two two things. One, did your advice include pickle juice for recovery for him when he was cramping? And two, aren't you glad that we never had to face John Isner's kick serve? Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, without question. I, I mean, I think for, for me, I was just, uh, you know, telling him that he needed to, you know, uh, drink a lot of fluids and, um, you know, just recover as best he can. Because, you know, you've been down that road as well as I have, Jimbo, that, um, you know, once cramps start and you know, back in our day, there was no, there were no IVs. Um, you know, nowadays when you're cramping, the, the medical team is there, they can give you an IV and, and your cramps are gone, really. Body cramps are gone within like 20 minutes. Back then there was none. So you had to walk, you had to drink and more, more times than not, um, certainly in, in the 89 French, uh, when I was cramping very severely in the locker room, it would take me two hours to to walk off these cramps, and and sometimes the cramps were so bad. I mean, I was literally walking stick legged. Um, you go to, to to stretch out your 
your quad and your and your hamstring goes and uh and that's what happens when you have uh you know cramps that are really a dehydration cramps because they really hit almost every part of your body well michael we certainly appreciate you joining us here on tennis channel live uh, give our best to the family stay health stay stay safe uh healthy and safe and uh hopefully we will see you and Kay on the court soon sounds good nice to talk with you guys Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. A retired Grand Slam winner to an active one. Tennis Channel Live was joined this week by the 2017 French Open champion, Elena Ostapenko. The Latvian was just beginning her tennis career when she stormed through the draw and rallied to beat WTA mainstay Simona Halep to win Roland Garros. Ostapenko joined Chanda Rubin and Steve Weissman to relive those historic two weeks in Paris and how she's staying active amid uncertain times. Right now, no tennis for four months at least. We saw you post on Instagram this morning, your morning run. Uh, how are things going? What have you been up to? Hi, I'm uh, good. I'm just trying to keep active as like as much as possible because, I mean, in these conditions, it's very tough because all the tennis clubs are closed and uh, all the gyms are closed. So I'm just trying to, to be active, to go for a run or to try to do something at home uh, just to, to be in shape. So, Yelena, you prefer to be called... Alona, so we're going to call you Alona. But, you know, I'm curious, as we go back down memory lane, 2017 French Open, what were you feeling as you made your way to that title? Um, you had certain matches where you'd lost the first set, where you were down. Was there ever a point where you felt like, okay, I'm in a zone, I'm here, I can do this? I mean, I was just uh, trying to take one match at a time. And I mean, that time I think I was fearless. I had nothing to lose because I was playing against the top seed girls. And I think very tough match was the quarterfinals. And when I won it, I got like a lot of confidence. And then I think every match I was playing better and better. And even I, w I lost uh, many matches the first set, but I was still fighting and I was still like playing until the last point. And I found a way how to manage and uh, won, uh, won the matches. Now, you're a big hitter. You go for your, sh your shots, as you mentioned. Did any fear ever come into play? What was your mentality sort of going after that last shot, you know, final stages of matches, the, you know, match points? How did you keep that aggressive mentality with so much on the line? I was just, uh, when was the match point, I was just like, okay, I have a chance. I'm going to try to use it and then I'm just going to go for a shot. If it goes in, it goes in. If it doesn't go in, hopefully I will have another chance. And uh, it's always like when you, you're fearless and you're not afraid to go for the shot, most of the time uh, it's going your way. But when you're like afraid to, to go for the shot and you're adopting, uh, it's the time when it's like not really working. So I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm going for it. I'm sure I'm going for it. It goes in, it goes in, it, go, it doesn't go in. Hopefully I have another chance. It went in 54 times in that final against Simona Halep, 54 winners. Uh, Alona, this was not only your first Grand Slam, this was your first WTA title. So uh, on, on many levels, how did you adjust to going from just being a regular player, ranked around 50 in the world, to now being a superstar? 
I mean it. I mean, it's probably it was my dream uh, dream uh, tournament to win. I mean, in general, the Grand Slam. I think it's uh, for a tennis player, it's the biggest tournament you can ever win. And I, of course, never thought it's gonna be my first title. And I mean, so many uh, things changed after that win, of course. And it was so hard for me to adapt to all that. And of course, it took me some time because it was completely different, everything. And people were expecting much more from me. And always like they thought that I'm going to play every tournament this well. And for me, it took a little bit of time to, to get used to all that. But I think now I'm doing much better than like uh, straight after French. And uh, the next year after that, I was struggling a little bit. Well, it's tough times now all over the world with the pandemic. Nobody's playing. Um, however, you had a great ending to 2019 of the finals. You won Luxembourg. What did you learn from winning the French Open? And how do you take that experience into whenever you're able to start back either this year, hopefully this year or beginning of next year? I mean, the main thing after French, I learned that uh, you have to play and fight every match. And especially after French Open, like almost all the girls are like playing so much better against me and they kind of get ready for the matches against me. So I really have to play on a high level almost all the, all of uh, my matches, which is very hard because I mean, all the girls, uh, almost all top 100 girls, they're like really good and uh, every match is a very tough match. So. Uh, every time I step on court, I have to play from beginning until the end, until we uh, shake hands. So that and uh, and fight fight uh, every point. If even if my uh, like if my game is uh, not going the the way I want it, I still have to fight uh, to fight and to find the way uh, to win even on bad days. Alona, you were a new Grand Slam champion at Roland Garros in 2017. Sophia Kennan was a new major champion earlier this year at the Australian Open. And then you got to play her in the Fed Cup in Washington State uh, just a couple months ago. You beat her. What, what was that experience like? I mean, of course, I knew it's going to be a very tough match, obviously, because she, uh, she won Australian Open and she, she's a great player and she was playing really well. And uh, but I always enjoy to play uh, for my country. I really love that uh, okay. time of the year. It's like two or three times a year. And uh, I think I even play better for my country and for my team because I know that my country and my team is behind me. I'm not only playing for myself and for me. I'm like, I played the Fed Cup since I was 15 years old and I never missed one tie. So I, I really love that uh, time and uh, to represent my country and also to spend time with the girls and with the team. I think it's great experience. Just because uh, we're all here in the United States, Alona, uh, and we know what's going on with coronavirus here. What What is the situation in Latvia right now? I mean, it's also like, it's not as probably as bad as in the other countries, but I mean, still it's, uh, it's tough times for all of us and uh, and uh, I'm just trying to to stay at home as much as possible, and uh, we cannot we can go outside still, but uh, everything is closed. Like uh, just some shopping malls are opened, and uh, like supermarkets are opened, and in general, people people of course are panicking a little bit because I mean it's a very serious situation right now, and. Uh, but still, like, if you go outside, you can see so many people, like, outside walking uh, on the beach or somewhere, which I think, uh, I mean, it's good and bad, but 
uh, I think sometimes uh, for now, like people have to probably stay home more and uh, because it's going to be better not only for them, but, but for all people uh, in Latvia. But I think now it's getting better, the situation, because like uh, today we had like 29 cases in uh, overnight. But yesterday we had only six cases, which is, I think, improving. Ostapenko was not the only story of the 2017 French Open, which also had its fair share of emotional moments. Perhaps none more genuine than Stevie Johnson's second-round triumph over Borna Chorich. Johnson had just lost his dad, Steve Sr., a few weeks prior, but got it out an impressive win over a talented up-and-comer, despite the emotional pain he was feeling. Afterwards, he spoke with John Wertheim in a powerful interview that was a lasting image of perseverance as Johnson paid tribute to his late father. Wertheim joined Nico Pereira and Steve Weissman to take a look back at that interview and explain his approach to conducting emotional interviews on the TC Live podcast. I mean, you interview people for your job all the time, 60 Minutes, Sports Illustrated. Um, in this situation, you're live on television. You have a guy who, who's breaking down in front of you. What's going through your mind at that moment? Yeah, I, I wanted him to be sure that he, he knew he did not have to do this interview. And he had indicated, I don't know if you can see it, I mean, he indicated that he, he was okay talking about it. And then I think the emotions just came. And it was, uh, I think it was, it was a tough moment. For Stevie, of course, but I think he wanted to be there and pay tribute to his dad. And one thing that, that struck me was, for, for those of us who are in this unfortunate club, a lot of times you can throw yourself into work as a distraction from grief. And it, it, keep, it kept striking me that his father was so instrumental in his tennis career that when Stevie tried to throw himself into his work, it wasn't a distraction. It was just another way that he connected with his father, who, who had just passed away. So that was um, that, that was a, a, a certainly a memorable moment for, for me courtside. And, you know, I, I know, uh, you know Nico's been courtside, too. It's not an easy drill under the best of circumstances, but uh, that was um, an especially tough moment. I, I give Stevie an awful lot of credit for, A, wanting to do it, and, B, being okay, getting emotional. And, um, you know, we've, we've talked about it since afterwards, and I, I think both of us have a bit of a connection through that, but uh, I, I give him all the credit in the world. Well, you could see it there, and it's very tough when you have to interview somebody that lost. But to have somebody that wins and is feeling like that, John, in those two, three minutes, you did a catharsis uh, on, on Steve, and I know him to be a very thoughtful guy. I know him from his USC days, being close to Andres Gomez's kids. And it was amazing, the transformation from the first minute or so when he was talking about what it meant, and then when you brought him finally to talk about the win. And when you have the Croatian fans, which we know they're very loud, and then the Americans who knew what was happening with Steve at the time, I think when you take a match to that emotional level, it just got to him because he had a tough first round win over Sugita in five sets, but it was nowhere near the reaction of beating a Borna Choric that is a very, very good player on, on any surface. And then unfortunately, well, Stevie ran into Dominic team, but what an emotional couple of minutes there. That's, that's hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, the first two rounds, I mean, were very difficult for Steve Johnson. And remember, uh, back then, I mean, his father just suddenly passed away. His, his whole family had planned to come to Paris, to come to, to, to London with him before Paris. And so uh, his fiancée at the time, they're now married, she was there. The mom was there. He had the support system. But as you mentioned, John, tennis was family. I mean, he grew up. His father was such a huge part of everything he did on the court. What were your memories of that match against George? Because there was some controversy there. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember thinking just from what we've been talking about, from an emotional standpoint, you could imagine what his neurochemistry must have been like. I mean, everything from the backstory to his father's sudden passing to just the ups and downs of that match. I mean, I, I think sort of the neurochemistry of any competitor in a match like that would be high. And as, as Nico said, let's not also overlook the fact beating Borda Chorich on clay is a great, great win. So there was so much going on. And I, I think he just sort of, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, a lot of strong stress hormones and a lot of neurochemistry going on. And I think once this sort of moment of competition ended, it all it all came flooding. I mean, you can see him there at the net and, um, you know, I, I think that was uh, it, it was a cathartic moment, maybe gi giving that interview and getting that all out. Then he had to come back and play two days later. I, I think we should pause and note uh, as a quick aside, Stevie Johnson won a match about 90 minutes before uh, before the 2020 BNP Paribas Open was called off at the at the Oracle Challenger. So Stevie Johnson may have won. You know, as of now, he has the longest winning streak in uh, in, in tennis, our most recent winner. Um, so it was nice to see him three years later. It's nice to see him still playing, you know, top 75 tennis, 30 years old, still out there. But boy, that uh, that French Open was clearly uh, a very emotional trip for him and uh, winning that match in that kind of fashion, all the more emotional. Well, you have to remember, he was going through a very good period. He was the seed in, in that yeah. area. He was number 25 in the seedings that year. But one thing about playing in the outside courts, the crowd, it's so much closer to the courts. When you play in the stadium, there is a bit of a distance. There is a bit of aloofness as most of the time in, in a match like this. But being played in such a small court just made the, the intensity level go way up. And as one that is used to playing on outside courts, I can tell you it can, it can get really personal and you can really hear what people are saying. And I think everybody was, was uh, paying attention to what Stevie was going through because it's such a horrific situation and, and we were all feeling for him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tennis Channel Live was delighted to catch up with our own Ian Eagle, who's been a mainstay on our Roland Garros coverage for years. Ian talks with Chanda Rubin and Steve Weissman about his favorite RG moments, being on the call for Serena Williams' only first-round Grand Slam loss ever, a 2012 shocking defeat at the hands of Virginie Rosano. A sports broadcasting veteran and one of the most respected people in his field, here's Ian Eagle now on the TC Live podcast. The man, the myth, the voice joins us here on Tennis Channel Live. Ian Eagle, great to have you on the program. Uh, obviously, normally at, at this time, you would have been just finishing up March Madness for CBS, getting ready to start the NBA playoffs for TNT. And then six weeks from now, we'd all be joining together in Paris for Roland Garros. Uh, how are you adjusting to all this time? Well, first of all, it's great to see both you and Chanda, Steve. And uh, you're right. This has been a very a stunning turn in all of our lives and very drastic. So the way my schedule works this time of year, very busy and routine-based NCAA tournament into the NBA playoffs. And then I cap off my broadcast year with the French Open. But the domino effect, as we know, has changed everything. It's been very surreal to go from 120 miles per hour 
to zero, but I put on a jacket. I got dressed up for you. <laughs> you look great. You look, Ian, like you've prepared for this moment. Have you been doing a lot of at-home teleconferencing? Have you, you know, kind of yes. worked to keep the chops still, you know, on fire here? <laughs> Chanda, yes, yes. Very, very important to do a mock play-by-play -play in the street, just as cars go by. Just call the action, whatever I can get my my mind into. Uh, you, the reality is you, you do have to stay engaged. And I think like so many people out there, you find yourself going down these rabbit holes. And if you're a sports fan, there is so much available. I've really enjoyed your conversations every day here on Tennis Channel, uh, keeping us entertained and also reminding us of some of the great moments throughout history. The French Open is near and dear to my heart because I've been a part of the coverage for Tennis Channel now for so long. So the red clay really resonates with me. All right, let's go back to 2012, that massive upset uh, when Serena Williams went down. She was up a set. She was up 5-1 in that second set tiebreak. What do you remember from those moments? What I remember is being in the broadcast booth with Lindsay Davenport and a little bit of insight into preparation for play-by-play. -play. When you're dealing with someone who is such a huge underdog, you try to get as many of, the, of those tidbits in early because you don't know how long a match is going to last. So there was a lot there with Rosano. She had dealt with terrible tragedy. Her former coach and fiance passed away from a brain tumor uh, just prior to the French Open. So she was still dealing with that. And let's face it, she was not expected to win this match. And one of the great things about sports is that there is a sense of mystery and the unexpected can happen. So for Lindsay and I, I think there was a general feeling that Serena was going to problem solve at some point late in that second set or in the third set, she would just take over. But Rosano's roller coaster ride with fatigue and nervous moments, she was cramping at one point. The fact that she got to the finish line to this day is still stunning because nobody could have predicted it. Yeah. Uh, in all your years, obviously, that probably the biggest upset you've called yeah. at Roland Garros, uh, maybe even in sports history. What are, what are some, some of your other memories uh, from being in Paris? You know, I remember a match in 2009, very similar in that when we get our schedule at the start of the day, we get assigned certain matches. And this match was not necessarily a featured match. It was Novak Djokovic against Philip Kohlschreiber. Third round match was over on court one. If memory serves, Djokovic had some scheduling issues where he had to make up a match based on either darkness or weather, and his schedule got bunched up. But this was not a headline match. The way that Kohlschreiber handled him was almost surgical. It was 6-4, 6-4, Djokovic had gone to the semifinals and back-to-back -back years prior. So he was a factor that year. We thought that maybe this could be a breakthrough for him at the French Open. And he just didn't have it on this day. And it was one of those last-moment decisions, uh, get the announcers out there to make sure that we're covered on this because it was unexpected. And we jumped in in that final set, and Cole Schreiber just had one of those perfect afternoons in Paris. Well, talking about, you know, big upsets like this, I mean, for Serena, first time losing in the first round of a major, I mean, it's incredible yeah. that 
it took that long for her to lose a first round match. I mean, it can happen to anyone. But in the midst of calling that match, you know, it usually feels like there's a certain time where you can maybe tell, OK, yeah. this is going to go not like we expected. You know, Serena was up 5-1 in the second set tiebreak. It looked for all the world like she was going to close that match out. At what moment did you really say, OK, this is going to happen or did it ever happen before match point? I think the moment, Shanda, was when Lindsay Davenport grabbed my wrist and she just started squeezing. And I quickly realized that Lindsay thought it was going to happen, which meant I thought it was going to happen. You're right. The entire match, uh, the general feeling was that Serena would make it happen. She would figure it out. And also the way that Virginia Rosano was struggling physically, there just was not this concept that she could pull through and everything that had led up to it did not lead us to believe that this was feasible. But it's a reminder of why we fall in love with these events and these moments that will live forever. Obviously, it's probably the biggest moment of Rosano's career and will never be matched because of just what was on the line for her, the stage, and for Serena, it's one of the forgettable moments in this incredible career, but one that I'm sure, even with everything that she's accomplished in her lifetime, still occasionally creeps into the back of her mind and reminds her what happened on that afternoon at Roland Garros. And you were the guy there to put it into words. Uh, pretty special stuff. This summer, Ian, uh, here at the L.A. Tennis Channel Studios, uh, there was a new play-by-play -play guy who came in. The name was Noah Eagle. Uh, what do you know about him? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same last name as me. Same look as me. He's certainly ripping off a lot of my uh, methods, but I'm okay with it because it's family. It's my son, Noah Eagle, who just uh, has a real love for tennis. He's play-by-play -play announcer for the Los Angeles Clippers out in LA. So uh, he's calling me dude a lot. I've, I've noticed a change <laughs> in that as well. And, and before we wrap up, I just want to check with you guys. Is Jim Courier just ready to go at a moment's notice? Can we just pop him up? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Whatever we want. I'm ready for the next segment, but I'm just, just checking in on you, listening to the, to the nice grooves. I think I'm not quite as close to you as Noah, though. Isn't he just in the room next door? Is he up yet? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's over here, but he hasn't shaved in a while, and I don't know. He's gotten shy out of nowhere, Jim. You, yeah. you look good, bud. Very odd. <laughs> is, is that a bobblehead? What, what's that bobblehead oh, no, deal behind you? Skype yeah, that, moment here. that is a bobblehead that, that a fan sent of me and my son. There are insane people out there, Steve. I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> I have not. Um, we hope, you know, Roland Garros is still on the calendar, September 20th, October 4th. I don't know if that's going to fit into your, you know, multi-talented schedule, but hope to see you in Paris. I, I would love to be there. And I'm thinking about you guys. It's great to be with you today. I'm going to keep watching like everybody else. You're providing just uh, endless entertainment for the tennis fan. And uh, it's it's been a joy. So stay safe, everybody, and thanks for having me today. Well, Andy Roddick has certainly found a home at Tennis Channel during this break from action, and he's back yet again for the final segment of the show. Listen as Roddick discusses the possibility of a U.S. Open played without fans in the stands and what the new reality might look like for tennis players after this global pandemic. But it starts with Roddick explaining a story. 
about how it went the first time he taught his wife, Brooklyn Decker, how to play tennis. Here now on the TCY podcast. I tried to teach Brooklyn tennis one time. It ended up 10 minutes later with a broken racket. And she said, what do you know about this anyways? And that was it. She broke a racket the first time you taught her how to play. Yes, that's fact. <laughs> All right. Um, if we do have tennis this year, we're hoping to get the U.S. Open in. And there are reports out of the U.K. that potentially they could be playing without fans, Andy. Uh, just as a player, would you want to play with no fans in the stands? Well, it's a different question. It's would you want to play with no fans in the stands if that was your only option? Um, and I think that answer is yes. I mean, would it be weird? Can you imagine playing a night session at the U.S. Open with no electricity, no fans in the stadium? It affects the way the ball travels. It, it yeah, it would be it would be nuts. It would feel weird, crazy. You know, I, I remember uh, you know one time in Canada they they couldn't shift the night and the day out fast enough, and so we played to an empty. I was playing Marcus Bagdadis, and we played three games in an empty stadium before they could start filling it. It, it. It's strange, but listen, is, is, would we be able to watch it on TV? Would it add value to tennis? Would we kind of help save the day? Would there be revenue coming in for players? Would they? So yeah, the, the net answer is it would be a horrible thing to do, but yes, you'd absolutely want to do it. Yeah. hundred percent agree. If at all, it's, it's possible to play as a place event, play it under any conditions, even if you have to consider shortening the draw and making these tournaments one week tournaments would it would it look the same on uh, uh on in the record books that no it'd have to have an asterisk to it if you made it a, a half draw and made it a one week event because you just simply didn't have time but again my focus here is how do you supply revenue to everyone involved in the tour with whatever weeks you may have possible we may not have an option there may be no tennis the rest of this year that's certainly a, a real possibility given the concerns of, of the virus making a return. But if there are weeks available, we have to be very smart in this sport about making sure that we have the highest revenue events for everyone involved, everyone involved. And again, those events are not there to make a profit. They're there to share whatever they have with everyone involved in the sport. For my opinion, this, this I'm you know speaking from left field, nowhere near the power structure of the sport, but um, that's the way that I would be looking at it if I were involved in those discussions. Yeah, and, and for a long time, I think one of the, the, the detriments to, to progress in the, in the world of tennis is everyone kind of serving their own self-interest, whether the ITF has their lane, the ATP Tour has their lane, the WT has their lane, the Grand Slams have their lane, and I'm sure I'm forgetting about 72 other governing bodies. But maybe this is maybe, maybe a silver lining is we're going to be forced to actually have these conversations together. The right hand needs to know what the left hand is doing. You can't just kind of meet up sparingly and hear from someone else. So hopefully this kind of creates precedent for, uh, for conversations moving forward. Andy, what, what would make you feel safe enough to play, even if there's no fans out there, but the, the players need to be safe as well. What would make you feel safe enough to say, okay, I, I can play and, and not contract this virus? I would like Dr. Fauci to be the tournament director for a year. Um, I, you know what, I'm not, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't know that there's a, a perfect answer uh, you know, you, you are sharing the same ball as someone else. Uh, the, the spacing is actually great. You could stay away from whoever. Maybe you call your own lines. I don't know. I mean, you might have to take it to extreme measures, but I'm, I'm kind of in Jim's corner. Uh, the things that we become accustomed to, we're a little spoiled on the pro tour. You know, we have everything brought to us. You might have to actually go walk and get your towel 
uh, you know, you might have to play on maybe the smaller courts to make that relevant. I know, I know Jim used to get annoyed with me getting my towel after every single point and thinks I created a movement, but uh, maybe I'd have to give that up for a couple of weeks and play outside of my comfort zone. Um, it, it's not going to be perfect if it's played in this scenario. People are going to have to deal with it. And at this point, with no tennis, if there's, been, if there's no tennis till the U.S. Open, players will be happy to have the opportunity to give up something. Yeah, here, here's what would make me feel better if I was going there, even to cover it as a broadcaster, testing. Everyone who comes through gets tested. Now, of course, that's not a reality, and certainly in the United States right now, that we have ample testing for frivolous things. We need to be testing people who are potentially sick, not for sporting events. So hopefully by the time that the opportunity to play tennis comes around, we're in a position where that is doable and it makes sense and it, it's not frivolous because we don't want to do anything to, to uh, hurt the real effort going on right now. But we have Hawkeye on all the courts available. They, we don't need lines people. So let's start there. If, if we are in a crisis moment, no lines people. Just go Hawkeye only. They've done that at the ATP, uh, at, at the, the, uh, the Young Guns event in Milan before. There's precedent for that. So there are things that you can do where you can limit the amount of people who need to be there. Ball kids wearing gloves. They were already going to do that at Indian Wells. So there are real things that you can do, but testing would be critical. You would need to know that people are healthy, that are coming through the doors, that are working and playing at the tournament. Um, even, you know, w whether it's your brother and your sister, your parents coming to watch, you just need to know. So there, there's a lot to process, a lot to think about. And my last point here, Andy We've already seen the, the powers that be come together. When the French Open laid that laid that stake in the ground for their date, that really pushed everyone together uh, apart from the French, and now they've come back into the fold. So I do think um, that we are seeing more more of, of the governing bodies working closely together to solve together the problem. And next Thursday, when we have Andrea Gadenzi on the program, Andy, we'll ask him if Dr. Fauci can maybe. Uh lend his services to the U.S. Open if, he, if he's got a little bit of time. Uh, we do want to end on a positive note, Andy, with your uh, new effort here. Love all. Join the campaign at Andy Roddick, at Tennis Channel, hashtag love all. Post and share your favorite positive news during this difficult time. Andy, you've, got, you've gotten a lot of response to this, right? Yeah, and we're actually going to lay down uh, some digital content today, uh, shouting out to the people who have been doing some great stuff. It's been awesome so far, so thank you, Tennis Channel, and thank you to the viewers for sending stuff in. Thanks to everybody out there for listening to the TC Live podcast on the Tennis Podcast Network. Go to tennis.com slash podcast for this and all other podcasts. The TC Live podcast is available on all podcast platforms, so make sure you check out the entire catalog of episodes. Next week, we're moving on to Wimbledon. The last five years of Wimbledon, which saw champions that included Roger Federer, Novak Djokovic, Serena Williams, Simona Halep. A lot of big names in the world of tennis claimed that crown. A lot to discuss, and we'll have that with you along with other guests. Andy Roddick back again, and other interviews lined up on the TC Live podcast. I'm Mitch Michaels. Hope everybody out there is staying safe, staying healthy, staying inside, and we'll see you next week on the TC Live podcast.